offering at the end of the church service <laughs> that you can give on your way out, and it provides for ministries in our church, not only here locally uh, to help people come to Christ, but also around the world. And one of those opportunities we have today is Randy Bevis is coming. He's one of our covenant missionaries that we support, um, and Randy and his wife Cheryl um, have been all over the world in Thailand for a number of years, um, now based in the United States, but going all over the world with providing sustainable fishing, uh, uh, fishing ponds, as well as using that as an entrance to share the gospel and disciple people. And so, Randy, come up and share more about that. Thank you for coming. Let's give him a hand. Thanks. Good morning, or is it afternoon yet? No, not quite yet, huh? I got up rather early. I was in Ely last night, so I drove five hours this morning to get here by 7.30. Um, but sometimes when you do international travel, you got to be at the airport at two, right? Or I'm a hunter. If it's hunting season, I can get up for anything, you know? It's like, that's not a problem. But some other things, it's hard to get up. But um, there was a lot of deer on the roads. A red, I almost took out a red fox. I couldn't decide where to go. Is I cut across, you know, by like Leech Lake. And it's like there's not an easy route from Ely to Alexandria, if you didn't know that. Um, but it's good to be with you here this morning. You guys have been a supporting church for us for, for, for many years as covenant missionaries. We, we were in Thailand from 1996 as covenant missionaries till 2013. And the next, that's a picture of the fish farm. We'll get back to that. There's another picture coming up. But this is my wife, Cheryl. Cheryl's a local yokel for you guys. She grew up in New London Spicer. Her sister actually lives in Starbucks, just down the road. And uh, Cheryl was from New London Spicer. I grew up in Wyzetta. And we met down here at North Park University um, in the late 80s, early 90s. We both had a calling to missions. Cheryl spent a year with Youth with the Mission. And uh, even when she was like 11 years old, she felt like God was calling her to be a missionary at their little Lutheran church, Northern Lutheran church there near, um, near Hawick, uh, a little town that if you blink, you won't see it on Highway 23. And um, the <clears throat> missionary spoke, and Cheryl went home and prayed about it at like age nine, maybe it was, that she had a calling to missions. And uh, I felt called. I spent a summer in Honduras when I was at North Park, there was two students, the McGill brothers, whose dad was an orthopedic surgeon, and they had grown up some in Honduras, so they planned a summer for us. And we went down, we drove my old 78 Velari that I inherited from my uncle, who was a covenant pastor. You know it's a bad car. If it's a throwaway pastor car, right, then you know it's really bad. We left that at a hotel in New Orleans for the whole summer. The manager said, yeah, you can leave it out back. And he was a Christian guy. But that was a great summer, and I just felt like uh, I really felt at home doing mission work. And so I was a biology major, and I was trying to figure out, well, how do I use my gifts to, to, for mission work? And I heard about Jim Gustafson was a covenant missionary in Thailand doing holistic ministry. He was doing stuff with fish farming and pig farming, and the gospel was one of the videos that Covenant World Relief made about. It, it says, like, Pigs, Fish, and the Gospel, I think, was the name of the video. Uh, we ended up meeting him, and we got married, Cheryl and I did. Six months later, we were off to Thailand where I entered a master's program in fish farming at an international school called the Asian Institute of Technology. And I'll just show you. Cheryl's a speech therapist. She um, got her degree at St. Cloud State. Back, um, we came back 
for a couple of years for her to finish that. So she's currently working where we live in Greensboro at an elementary school, and that's her ministry with, with some pretty needy kids, actually, sort of from a more of an inner city school. Um, but this is me doing fish farming projects, and uh, tilapia has been the main fish that I did my research on and I've worked with over all the years. It's, in a, it's a fish that's in 100 countries. How many of you eaten tilapia? How many have had good experiences with tilapia? Are there any bad experiences? Some people might not like it. Any? A few? I actually had my worst tilapia ever was the Hyatt Regency of O'Hare. And it was just like a bad, they can sometimes get a muddy flavor from the way it was raised and whatnot. And so like if that was your one experience, you might be, oh, it's a horrible fish. But actually, it's a very good fish. And I'll show you a picture at the end to prove that later. But um, I've been working in Thailand for 20 years and then... The woman at the basket, that's Congo. Laos is in the upper corner. Uh, Kenya, Honduras, um, Malaysia, Mali. So I, I've been around quite, quite a few countries, Haiti. Uh, I'll share some more pictures of that. And I've been basically using fish farming as a way to help people, but also make a connection with people to do discipleship, to share my faith with people. Um, so we'll go ahead and go to the next picture. This was the staff that uh, worked at the fish hatchery, that opening picture you saw in, in Thailand. And we had about 40 employees, one of the biggest little companies in that, in that district. And uh, go to the next picture. Just again, that's a picture, aerial picture of the fish farm. Those are all ponds, and there's nets in the pond. And each one of those nets is, is like from here to the piano. So you can imagine it's, it's pretty big, pretty big ponds. And uh, we had about 30,000 breeding tilapia in those nets. And every week, we would harvest those with a piece of bamboo and then one by one look for eggs in the mother's mouth. It's kind of a special fish. The eggs, she keeps them in her mouth after she lays eggs. And then we would bring them into our hatchery, which is the big kind of building in the middle. And we'd hatch them in the jars. And we could get, on a good month, up to 10 million eggs coming out of that farm from, and it happens every month. You'll have, if it gets too hot, it goes down, or too cool in the cool season, it can be, you know, not, not sustain that. But we, we were selling over a million tilapia fingerlings every month on average to fish farmers for about a penny a piece. This was a way to what we call business's mission. We're running a business, and we're, we're blessing the community, giving jobs. We're holding church with our staff, daily prayer time, Bible studies. We're involved with the village right there. There's no church in the village. It's a Buddhist country, so it's 95% Buddhist. So we're trying to live out our faith through day-to-day activity of running a fish farm. But we also had a church planning ministry and a musicology ministry that this farm was funding, and then later a sports ministry and a camp. And so this was all sort of part of that uh, business's mission. Well, the sad thing is this, this year they closed the doors after 25 years on the hatchery. It, was, it had its good years, at feed prices and fertilizer and COVID was hard. They shut down. You could even drive between provinces and stuff for three years. It was really a hard time for Thailand. It was just a little too much for them. So this farm is closed down. And that's pretty, it was sad to me to see it in June when I was over there. But what I was kind of reflecting on is all those people that you saw and all those people you didn't see. We had university students that would come and do internships, and we had connections with the Department of Fisheries and all these the people, all the farmers that I'd go visit, the fish farmers, and build a relationship with them. Relationships is really what's important, right? Building stuff, a functioning business, it's a good thing. You know, it was a good endeavor, uh, but, you know, people will get their fish from another hatchery from Bangkok or somewhere else, and uh, 
and there'll still be fish to be had. Um, go ahead and go to the next picture. So I was kind of reflecting this week on uh, Timothy and Paul's letter to Timothy and re- reflecting on discipleship. I was discipled when I was a North, North Park student. There's North Park Seminary too. And Keith Hamilton, who some of you, how many have gone to Alaska and done trips? So Keith Hamilton was in seminary at the time. He was roommates with Steve Ng, who used to be a pastor here, right? And Todd Schlechter, who was also, a, the three of them lived together. But Keith was discipling myself and Tim Hedberg, and he was doing that with a couple other two guys that he would disciple. And basically, we had this disciple booklet. We'd get together every week and work through it. Jerry Reed discipled Keith. Jerry Reed was a missionary in Mexico, Jerry and Nancy Reed. And he came up sort of with this platform of discipleship. I mean, discipleship's been there, right, since, since the Bible. But, um, but Jerry wrote like a sort of a manual for it, a starting point to how to do it. And so we do that every week. And uh, yeah, and Tim and I both ended up going into ministry. I'm a covenant missionary, and Tim was a covenant pastor. Um, and many other people that Keith discipled went into full-time ministry too. Um, and others that didn't, they were just good committed Christians because they had that foundation. One way to explain discipleship versus just having Jesus as your Savior. Have you ever seen the little th- throne diagram? You can have Jesus as your Savior, but not Jesus as your Lord, right? Is that possible? It shouldn't be possible, but you, you can accept Christ and have that you know, assurance of salvation, but you're not really putting Jesus in control on the throne of your life. And that was one of the images that we talked about, uh, that giving over your whole, uh, your whole life to Christ. Um, and so let me just read this. This sort of just shows you how Paul felt about Timothy. This is just his opening letter. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan the flame, the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So Paul's writing this letter encouraging Timothy, right? And uh, if you read the letter, there's a lot in that letter where he talks about all the people that did him harm as well. He talks about people when he was suffering in jail or suffering under persecution or in a hard place, there was many people that he mentions that, that left him. He was, there was just very few that were loyal to Paul through it all. I think Timothy was one of them, and he's encouraging Timothy, even in the midst of the difficulties of his own church, that, to rise up and be a leader and, and to, uh, to be an example for people. And so uh, I'm going to share just a couple of stories of some of the people um, that have been in my life doing the mission work the last 27 years or whatever it's been. Um, Siung is my Thai blood brother. And uh, the, he's a, actually the president of the Covenant Church of Thailand right now. And, uh, but he runs a fish farm in northeastern Thailand. I was running a fish farm in northern Thailand. We were born the same year and the same month. And we both like hunting and fishing. So um, there's a lot of interest in Thai people say, ooh, you guys are seal gun. You're, you're like 
brothers from another mother, you know, is how you'd say it, I guess, in English, right? Uh, blood brothers. And so they actually did a special ser- service for ceremony for us in a church service where uh, a pakama is a Thai towel that you wear around your waist. You can use it like, you know, when you're bathing or you can just use it as a belt. Put your knife in when you go to the field. You can use it as a headscarf or a swimsuit. You can tie it around a certain way to, like, like when like, when it says Peter removed it and jumped in the water, something like that. You know, they had a cloth that they wore. So anyway, we were given this, this two pakamas that were made the same colors from the same, you know, dye, fabric. And I tied one around Siung and he tied one around me and we held hands and looked into each other's eyes. It was a little odd as an American. Thai people aren't as uh, put off by this. You know, they'll walk down the street holding hands and stuff. It's just, you're good friends. So it was a little awkward for me to be an American guy. But um, we committed to each other that we we're going to pray for one another and be friends till death, basically, you know, kind of thing. That we are now bonded together by just like this pakama was from the same fabric. We, we also are from the same fabric. Um, so he's been a good friend of mine. And uh, it's his wife, and that's eating together at their farm. Go ahead and go to the next uh, picture. And then this is another relationship worth, uh, where it's like uh, uncle, you know, nephew, or father, son. This is Anne. He was one of the young people. Um, our fish farm actually wasn't the first thing to start. We start my Thai coworker started a music ministry and a church planning ministry, and they needed some way to sort of finance, self-finance that. That's how we came up with the idea to do the fish farm. But they were doing music ministry, and, and they were getting young people and teaching them how to play the northern Thai instruments, also writing worship songs to use in Thai churches or introduce people to Christ through music. And Ea was one of the ones that studied under Anand and Amnui, my, our directors, and Ea was baptized in one of our fish ponds at the farm. And, and the fish paid his way through seminary. He ended up going to Payao Seminary. And uh, the fish farm helped provide for that and paid his way. This piece of land, um, Amnua and Anan, our directors, kind of bought just on their own. But they ended up donating it to, um, to our ministry our foundation, and we built this building together. This is our Bible camp that we developed, and then we're standing on the soccer field. It was a little overgrown because of COVID, and they couldn't play soccer when I visited, but A went and got his coaching degree in soccer, and after we built this building together, he actually started a construction company, and he has three teams now that, that uh, are building churches for people and different Christian ministry things. He tends to get a lot of kind of Christian um, contracts because he's very honest and, and people know he's, they're going to get a good product. And, that, and uh, he went all, as well and got a lawyer degree now. So he's a construction company owner and a lawyer and a soccer coach. And uh, so using those things for ministry. So he actually treated me to a meal last time I was in Thailand because you've always helped me. I want to treat. So he took me out for a really nice meal. So that was kind of nice. Um, but as someone that I considered a disciple of mine, even though we didn't have a little booklet and sit down and said, okay, here's discipleship time. That's not really my style. I'm more of a, we work and we do stuff and, and we talk just through work. And that's, that's how I kind of view my discipleship. Not that it's better or worse. It's just my personality style. So go ahead and go to another uh, picture. Here's a, this is one of the key verses that we'd memorize, you know, in discipleship where it talks about, uh, um, what Paul said to Timothy, he said, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
And then uh, I added this part that was, it's, this is the rest of the text. It says, share in the suffering a good, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And it goes on to talk about being a soldier of Christ, an athlete, you know, they have goals that you don't give up. Um, but that wasn't, the, we didn't memorize the share in the suffering part. We would just stop at teach others also. That was like the discipleship verse to memorize. But I thought the suffering one is interesting to just share a bit about that because when Paul's writing the letter, he's talking about all the suffering he's been under and all the people that didn't stand by his side. And, uh, and so he's, you know, telling Timothy to, to help share in the suffering. And uh, I'll share just a couple more stories. Um, go ahead and go to the next. I uh, started going to Haiti and after we moved back to the Minnesota in 2013. And uh, I was going every other month for, for a week and training people out of this fish hatchery. And uh, it's a little odd they're wearing construction caps working with fish. Don't ask me why. I'm not quite, never really figured that out. But I think it was to keep the sun off their head maybe. Uh, but um, this was a hatchery. And um, I actually got asked to go down there because the guy that worked did my job before I got murdered in Haiti. And so that was a little odd to be asked to replace somebody uh, that, that was killed. And one of the bad things that can happen in Haiti, if you go to the bank, you got to be quite careful. If you take out even as much as $300 cash, someone in the bank might tip off a gang member that they're friends with and working in cahoots with and say, hey, the guy in the red shirt's got $1,000 in his right pocket. And then the gang follows you and robs you. And then they give a cut to the person in the bank. You know, you think it wouldn't be real hard to break that. You'd figure out cell numbers and right but anyway this has been going on for a long time and so this guy Garrett went to the bank and someone followed him home and and he fought with the guy and didn't want to give the money and you know you never know sometimes they kill you anyway um but he ended up getting killed right there in his front yard and so uh he was an American old navy guy and uh and so I went down there to to help do what he had been doing and he was kind of a technical help for this hatchery and uh Another guy from Colombia would go the other months. I'd go one month, and then Andres would go the other month, and we were training. You can see the next picture. Um, this was a team of people that worked at the hatchery. And one of the guys, they're all great guys, uh, uh, but Alex is in the Oxford pink shirt, the third, for, third from the right. And he's, we've kept up. He was the manager. He was actually an American citizen, a Haitian-American, but he went back to Haiti and wanted to live there and work. He married a Haitian woman, has two little girls. And, uh, but after I left, you know, he went on and moved on. And this hatchery, they moved it more out by the lake where this big cage project was. And, and he actually ended up, he was trying to get his family to America because he's got an American passport, but it's hard to get a Haitian wife and children to America with immigration issues. He ended up getting his wife to Chile, which is a country you can get to, but then you're hoping to get onto America. And he ended up working in Dominican Republic, which, you know, shares an island with Haiti. I helped get a used computer for him so he could do some online job to try to support his family. And he finally made it to Chile after two years of being separated. And they're still trying to get to America, but he said they just, they kind of given up on the Haiti or on the Chile plan. So him and his two daughters, I'm not quite sure where his wife is, if she's waiting in Chile or what, but him and his daughters have walked all the way through Mexico now. It took them 30 days in, in one of the refugee, you know, kind of routes. And, and he, he wrote me, a, he said, you've helped me so much, you know, but um, I'm asking, this will be the last time I ask, he said, but I'm all out of money. My mom's helped me all she can. And, and uh, so I helped him out a bit. And I, I texted him two days ago and asked him how it's going. And he said, well, we're to Monterey now. And he said, it's, it's getting cold here. 
And we're just going to wait. They're waiting for the certain day of the, when the U.S. opens and takes some applicants at the border. And he said people have taken advantage of them at every, every turn. And uh, they're going to hold out there for a while. And someone donated some jackets to his daughter and to him. And he sent a little video clip of his daughters jumping up and down. They were so happy to get those jackets. But So Alex is someone, you know, that um, sometimes it's annoying, right, when people keep asking you for money, right? But it's somebody I've tried to stay in touch with and, and, and tried to help him out where I can and, uh, and be a friend to him. And uh, I, just, I really feel for him right now because it sounds like a pretty horrible situation for him. He said it's the hardest thing he's ever done in his life. Uh, so that's Alex. Go ahead and go to the next. Uh, Jeffrey is also somebody that I worked with in northern Haiti. And we, we drove down and I gave him a tour of the project in Port-au-Prince. And uh, he was working with farmers in northern Haiti, and he had never done fish farming before, but he graduated with an agricultural degree from the uh, Christian University of the North. And his wife and daughter are in Ohio, and he has been trying to get to see them for like three years and waiting to try to get a visa and never was able to. And I helped write a, he asked if I would guarantee him that you need a sponsor, an American that will say, if something goes wrong, he can hold me accountable, which is a little awkward. I mean, it's like putting yourself out there again, right? But he's a good guy, and so I felt like it was okay. And he finally made it to Ohio now and is with his wife and daughter after three years of being apart. Um, the next picture, these were some of the people we were working with with Jeff, and he, he was training them on how to dig ponds and how to, we brought them fish from the hatchery in Port-au-Prince. And the guy in the, um, in the black hat and the white T-shirt, he was there, and he didn't have land, and Jeff said, this is actually the local witch doctor. I said, oh, I said, and, and he'd like some fish. And there was a community pond there. He was going to put it in. And I was like, what do you think about that, Jeff? Jeff goes, yeah, we should, we should help him out. And me as, you know, as a Christian missionary or working with a witch doctor, that's kind of odd. But when you think about it as a, as a missionary, the witch doctor is actually is somebody respected in the Haitian community. He's your, your herbal medical guy you go to. People can't afford medicines in Haiti. Dr. Mano, who we work with, he works with diabetics. Just to test yourself for diabetes every day, you can't. They can't afford it. They live on $2 a day, and that's what the test costs. So he gives away tests. And so somebody like this guy, people go to, and he can help with little ailments here and there. And he actually has a heart for the people in the community. He just doesn't know the source of, of freedom through Christ, right? He's trying to do it through voodoo. And, and so to just reject the guy and say, well, we, don't, we won't work with you because you're, you're a witch doctor, it'd be better to work with him and, and bless him, right, and, and have an impact on his life. And so that's sort of a point of how, how I view working in missions and, and not to, there's some projects, there was one that wanted to come to Thailand, and they said, we only work with Christians to give loans, small loans. I'm like, well, Thailand's 90, 95% Buddhist, 4% Muslim, so that's like half percent Christian. So you're, you've just canceled out 99% of the country. Um, and what kind of testimony is it just to work only with Christians, you know? And they force them to, they force, if you do their project, you have to tithe. It's a fourth tithe to do your project. I mean, these are biblical concepts, but to me, I, I, I had some issues with that because I would rather be in the community. Our music team would go and play at the Buddhist funerals. Because we're trying to be in the community and, and in, a, in a way that they don't view you as some weird 
foreign religion. We're trying to be enculturated and, and blessing people in the village. So that's just a little story about trying to do that in Haiti too. Um, Paul Noren is a missionary in uh, I'm going to go back one more story. I didn't t- this is for some of you who had to go listen to three sermons, so you hear a different story. One of the most, the strangest events that happened in Haiti, we went to a voodoo temple. They have a monthly voodoo gathering. I didn't really want to go, but other people and the team wanted to see it and stuff. I'm like, oh, this doesn't sound good, but okay. So we went there. It's sort of like a people watching thing, and they, the couple said, well, let's go inside. I said, okay. So we go in there, and I just felt, my spirit felt like, this place is dark, and, and it was strange. And we go in there, and there's people everywhere, and there's a guy chanting on girls, and I guess he was trying to make them give them power to be beautiful, that people would be attracted to them. So there was a long line of people waiting for him. As we're watching this, this guy looks at me from across the room, and he comes at me like a snake on the ground. It was the strangest thing. And he comes right up, and he goes in like this in my face, and he said, who are you? Where do you come from? Then he got down and bowed at my feet. <laughs> and this all happened in, in a, a voodoo temple um, with people everywhere. And I was like, here we go. And I saw him coming at me. I'm like, it's about to, stuff's about to happen. And uh, everybody crowded around and started yelling at the guy and told us we should probably leave. And then we did. But it was what my spirit felt like happened. It was a power encounter. That guy was, I would say he was possessed. The way he came at me, it was not human movements. It was strange. It, you ever see this, the movie Monsters and Randall was the bad guy, that, that like lizard guy? He, he came like that towards me, but very quickly and came up right in my face. And then he bowed down at my feet. That reminded me of the scripture where, where the spirits saw Jesus and they saw the power that, and they asked for him to, to, to leave them alone, right? And so it was a <clears throat> strange encounter but it left me, it actually encouraged my faith because I saw, I said, his, whatever is evil spirits bothering him, identified Christ in me. And the other people in the group were like, why did he do that to you, Randy? And, and the, the one girl from Canada that was in the group isn't a, uh, I wouldn't call her a committed Christian, but she's there to try to help people and stuff. Her parents have a foundation, but, but she's like, well, they've never done that to me. And I said, well, you know, it's, it's because I'm a committed Christian and God's Holy Spirit lives in me. And that's the power. And, and that Dr. Mano said, yeah, yeah, that's, he's, he said his mom, a lot of things like that has happened to his mom who was a really solid Christian. And it's not that my faith is so solid or great, but God's Holy Spirit lives in me. Um, so anyway, that's another voodoo story for you that's kind of interesting and kind of mind-blowing. Um, another picture uh, Paul Noren is a covenant missionary in, in Congo, and he's got some wild stories that can blow your mind, too. I mean, he's lived there all his life, born there, and uh, voodoo actually comes from Africa, from some of these countries, and, and was brought, um, you know, to Haiti. Um, so there's all kinds of interesting animistic stories and power encounters that have happened in Congo. And we have a covenant church in Congo that's a million believers, and we're trying to help people like this in Zenge is his name, um, and with to teach them how to do fish farming. You see, everywhere in Congo, people are hungry. When you're just standing around talking and there's kids around, they're always foraging. They're foraging because they're hungry. They're looking for berries to eat this or that, bugs. Um, one morning we were driving out. It was 5 a.m. And I saw these little lights in people's front yards. They were all collecting flying termites. And that was going to be their, their protein, you know, for the day. They don't, like a chicken, a family, maybe six chickens in one year. They'll, they'll grow some, but they just don't, there's not much protein. And fish, 
are pretty much non-existent now. They've over-harvested all those streams that run through the areas there. And so we're trying to do fish farming as a way. Go ahead and go to the next picture. Um, this is just a little farm there, really simple. There's no electricity. We're just breeding the fish in nets and feeding them actually wild termites that we go harvest. You can break off. It looks like a big mushroom. You can just break it off and take your fish spot and hit it with a machete and all these little termites fall out. And we throw those to the baby tilapia and they're a great they're like 60% protein. They're little nuggets of protein for these fish. And so we get nice growth of, uh, of tilapia doing that. Um, so you got to come up with kind of creative ways to, uh, to do things in different countries where you don't have resources. Um, another picture. Go ahead and go to the next one. So Pastor Dole is our, um, he runs the fish project. He's a covenant pastor, also is a covenant administrator. And uh, there I am in the pond. It looks kind of dirty water, but that's because there's a lot of tannins in the water, a lot of leaf material, but it's actually not so bad. Um, there are some big leeches, though, because it was swamp-like. You might not like that. But Pastor Dole actually made connections through teaching fish seminars with the president of Central African Republic. That's a neighboring country of Congo. Congo's here, and there, we have refugees that have gone to Central African Republic, and we were training on how they can improve their fish ponds. And somebody had sent a delegation from the president's office to attend the seminars. And the president heard about it and wanted to meet us. So we actually got to meet the president of Central African Republic like last March. And we walked past Russian mercenary bodyguards to get in his office because the Wagner group is, is all over that country. The president actually only had the capital left Six years ago, I would fly in just the capital. The UN had the airport surrounded, and we would just take a dugout canoe into Congo. So that was fairly safe because we're not going out. But you couldn't go out of the capital before. But the Wagner group has cleared now the rebels out of the country, basically. There's still a little bit of pockets of it. But, um, but at the price of the president's basically giving up his natural resources, there are big diamond machines that you can see on their trucks to extract diamonds and cobalt and whatever else, lumber. And so that was kind of the deal. He, his country survived, but, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with Wagner. And there's a lot of, uh, a missionary woman told us a lot of stories of uh, one of her coworkers was almost murdered by the Wagner guys because he took a picture. He didn't know it was their camp. And they came out of the woods and they interrogated him all night long. And they were going to lead him down a trail and he thought he was going to get a bullet in his head. And two other Russians came up and they had a big argument and then they let the guy go. But he thought, he thought that was going to be the end for him. But, but somehow we've got in with the president, we've designed a fish project that he's going to fund, actually fund personally, and uh, hopefully it'll be a, a good project, and we, pastors are involved in it, and we prayed over the president, and he prayed with us, and so he's a, a Christian man, apparently, um, I know he's probably <laughs> involved with some shady stuff, um, there's actually someone that was in his ministry, the head of forestry, didn't want to release funds to us, and he's a Muslim, and he didn't like that the pastors are working with the president, and so it's kind of another interesting power struggle, but uh, the president says he's just going to fund it personally out of his pocket then, this project. So you can pray for us and that God would use us in this um, connection and that it would be God-honoring and, and it would help produce a lot of fish for Bangui. One tilapia costs about $10, where in Thailand it would only be about $2 for that same fish because the price of fish is so high there. So Pastor Dole is a great example. And the last picture for you, I told you I was going to prove to you that tilapia is a good fish. Well, this is Jesus barbecuing a tilapia. And so if anyone says tilapia is not a good fish, we'll say, well, Jesus ate tilapia and uh, end that conversation because it is, it's like a bluegill or, or crappie. It's a, it's a nice fish. But this is from the end of John, 
This is a resurrected Christ, a painting of him on the shore. The disciples decided we're going to go back to fishing because they didn't know what else to do with their lives. And uh, Jesus said, hey, did you catch anything? And they said, no. And they didn't know it was Jesus yet. He said, well, throw your net over on the other side. You remember then they caught 153 large fish, which would have been tilapia. If you read about it, tilapia is the only fish that was in Galilee, a big fish. There was some little anchovies, but it was a tilapia, this big fish. And so they came to the shore. Peter jumped out of the boat, you know, and swam because he was so excited. And Jesus was waiting for them with fish and bread on, on, uh, that he was barbecuing. This is how we eat tilapia, actually, a lot of places were with the head on barbecued. Thailand will put salt on it and put spices in it. Um, And I just want to leave you with this picture to remind you of how Jesus worked with people. You think about discipleship and the 12 that he chose to spend time with and life with and how gentle he was even in this scenario where Peter, as they sit around eating tilapia and, and bread, he's reinstating Peter after Peter had rejected him, right? Peter, and he said, he said, take care of my sheep. He said, Peter, do you really love me? Peter said, yes, Lord. And he said, well, take care of my sheep. And he said, Peter, do you really, really love me? And he said, then feed my sheep. And so this is the, um, the image of, of the gentleness of Christ and, and encouraging the disciples to take the gospel forward. And so thank you guys for listening to me. And, uh, and thank you for your support for all these years and your prayers for us. I appreciate it. Let's pray for Randy and the ministry. Lord, we thank you for Randy and Cheryl and the ministry they've had for many years. Uh, thank you for their call to missions. Thank you for their, um, their willingness to go. And I pray for safety um, as Randy goes into a lot of different places that are, are hard places to go to, uh, just that the gospel could be penetrate hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.